Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have a fun miscellaneous episode on a topic that I've become increasingly interested in in the past few months during pandemic, which is Japanese baseball. Today I have Rob Fitz on the show. Rob is an expert on the history of Japanese baseball, particularly in the United States, and has written a lot of great books on the topic. And today we're going to be focusing our conversation about a specific book that he wrote about the first Japanese baseball club uh, that was created in Los Angeles in the early 20th century. This is a fascinating conversation and a little bit out of our chronological order. So I am dubbing this episode the Midweek Miscellaneous History Episode of California. I hope you enjoy, and let's go meet Rob Fitz. So like many of us, um, we've, in times of pandemic, we've looked for uh, forms of entertainment. And whatever it is, I always go back to Ken Burns. I started, unfortunately, in the pandemic by watching his Vietnam series, which maybe wasn't the best way to spend those early months. But eventually I got my way to jazz and then to baseball. Um, his baseball documentary is one of my favorites. And he starts the documentary by saying, you know, quoting someone that says, uh, baseball is America's pastime. Do you agree with that statement? Is baseball America's pastime? Well, it certainly was at that time. Um, I don't know if we can make an argument that it is today. But back in the early 20th century, it was the dominant form of um, sports entertainment. And one of the things I've always found fascinating is at that time, writers, sports writers, and politicians kind of uh, imbued baseball with almost magical powers. Um, they claimed that if you understood baseball, you could understand how to be American. And so one of the recurring themes at that time in the literature is that baseball has to be taught to immigrants and that if an immigrant population could understand the rules of baseball, they could understand democracy and they could become American citizens and assimilate. So in that sense, yes, at that time, it was very much the national pastime. And that's interesting because I, I, I don't automatically tie democracy and baseball together, right? right? So what, can we maybe crack down on some of the specifics here? So like what, because I, I, I know there's, there's things that make sense with democracy, right? Teaching people how to read, like, like you know, that, that has a definite correlation with you know, people being informed voters, but um, teaching people to play a kind of adapted form of cricket. I, you know, I don't, I, so help me here. What, maybe I'm not asking you to defend the remark necessarily, but just make it clear. What are they saying? Is it just teamwork or what is it? Well, first of all, I was wondering the same thing after I read these statements over and over again. And I spent a good month um, tracking down footnotes and finding um, kind of rare publications that aren't on the web anywhere and calling up friends, this is pre-pandemic, of course I was able to do this research, calling up friends in, in different uh, cities going, can you go down and see if your local newspaper is on microfilm and get me this article? Um, what the general gist of it was, was baseball is a rule-bound uh, game and there are winners and losers, and you're supposed to play with a gentlemanly demeanor 
and <laughs> accept the results of the umpire and accept your win or your loss. And this kind of idea that you can fight on the battlefield but go away as friends would lead to bringing people into democracy where supposedly the democratic um, institutions the same way. Now, that's really interesting because we know baseball even back then was not a gentleman's game and people cheated and were rioted and you know, fought on the field and politics also were not uh, a gentleman's game back then either. So we don't know if it's a very good, um, uh, what's the right word for it, um, explanation, but uh, that's what they were arguing. You know, and part of the irony there, right, is, the, you know, the studies that have come out that have checked, you know, because what you're saying is that, you know, follow the rules, the umpire knows best. And all those studies that came out where they checked the umpires to see if their strike accuracy, uh, you know, they put those cameras in the back or whatever, uh, and could, could determine, oh, how accurate is it? I mean, it's, it, it is kind of a good metaphor, though, if you're thinking about, you know, democracy and capitalism and who gets to decide and how accurate is it. But uh, we don't want to go down that road necessarily. I just, I'm, I'm thinking about it in terms of, um, you know, what it says about America. And I think, I think it, it ultimately says what, what we want to believe about how things work. Right. Yeah. That's, and that's what I hear you getting at. Um, so we're going to be talking about uh, Japanese, a Japanese baseball club uh, that was in Los Angeles. Um, and kind of to preface that, uh, we haven't really talked about this in the podcast all that much, but um, the Japanese experience in California is one of the most challenging of any ethnic group or immigrant group that would come, uh, that would immigrate to California. You know, that we would get this whole uh, history and policy of discrimination against the Japanese. Can you speak a little bit about, um, you know, kind of the preceding events that led, that, you know, come before uh, the formation of this uh, team that we'll focus on? Sure. Um, just basic history. Japan is a closed medieval country until the um, 1850s where uh, Commodore Perry brings his famous black ships into Tokyo Bay. He forcibly opens up the country to um, Western powers and trade. Um, Japan realizes it's behind the times very quickly and decides to modernize. It sends its top students out to the West to get educated and it brings in um, Westerners to Japan to educate the populace. Um, in 1872, one of those uh, educators, an American, brings the game of baseball to Japan. So baseball's first played in 1872 in the elite um, schools in Tokyo, and it spreads slowly throughout the country until about 1900, it's played throughout the uh, Japanese islands. So at the very, throughout much of the 19th century, there were really only a trickle of Japanese immigrants uh, coming to the United States. And the ones that came generally were students and merchants, um, people of higher economic status and higher education. And they were able to move into kind of, I don't want to quite say elite, but, but kind of the, uh, the, the educated circles of the country. They were seen kind of as an oddity. I'm sure there was 
bigotry, but it was, they were generally kind of accepted. Um, but what happens starting in the uh, 1890s, especially after 1900, is tens of thousands of uh, Japanese come to the United States to work as agricultural and other laborers. Um, they're fleeing uh, poverty uh, in Japan. There's a Great Depression. Um, and they're com most of these people, who are mostly men actually, about 90% men, are coming to Hawaii or California for a short time period to earn as much money as possible and then go back to Japan, buy some land, and start a family. Because they were, they, their goal was to earn as much money as possible in a short of time, they were willing to live in pretty tough conditions. Um, and they were willing to work for as little as possible. I mean, they needed the money. And they, so they underpriced um, the native laborers. Now, that's to suggest they were the ones underpricing. I mean, in reality, right. of course, the employers said, "Hey, I'll, I'll pay you ten, you know, a dollars less than this guy," and they said, "Of course." Um, so what happened very quickly is uh, in California and in Washington, there was a great deal of resentment against the Japanese immigrants who are who are coming in in large numbers, taking the lower paying labor jobs at a lower wage, um, not trying at that time, most of them were not trying to assimilate, most of them stayed together and then leaving the country. Um, at the same time, you have a great deal of racism and bigotry on top of all that, just anyway. So they weren't welcome because they were different. Um, and a lot of times the Japanese immigrants, like the Chinese, weren't allowed to uh, rent in certain areas. They weren't allowed to eat in certain restaurants. They weren't allowed to even go to certain barber shops. So they were isolated and, kind of, and ostracized. Um, so by the time you hit 1905, 1906, there's a really solid anti-Japanese immigration movement in California, which is focused in San Francisco. And, uh, Many politicians are trying to get the Japanese out of California or at least stop all future immigration. Yeah. So it it seems like the formation of this club that we're going to talk about is a is kind of like a maybe like a I don't want to say a Jackie Robinson movement, but 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 something that is a way to connect with a broader culture in the same way that like professional basketball these days. Uh, you know, connects African-American culture and uh, people can, you know, s start to see past uh, prejudice if they enjoy something. So can you talk a little bit about the formation of this club and what, what led to it? Sure. Um, I actually think in the very beginning with the formation of the club, I think Americans had very little to do with it. These, uh, the men who formed the club in Los Angeles were employees at the Rafu Shimpo, a Japanese, at that time, Japanese language newspaper. It still exists today. Now it's mostly in English. Um, they were employees there and they had, the vast majority of these men had learned the game in Japan. They had played for their high school teams, a couple played for their college team, and they just loved baseball. So they went out on their off days and started playing. They had like a, you know, a pickup team at first. 
Um, after a little while, they got better and they decided to form a true amateur team. Um, it is, there's no true evidence, but it is likely that they were not able to join a, a organized league because throughout their history, they were always outside the organized leagues. They, they would play whoever was willing to play them. And this, this was before there was actual professional baseball in California, right? It was still considered not amateur, but like minor leagues, I guess. Well, sort of. <laughs> okay. It's confusing um, to me. It is confusing. There was no, what we would call major league baseball, but um, the minor leagues, the Pacific coast league was an extremely strong league. Um, some people even would like to call it a third major league for some, some periods in the early 20th century. It was a great nice and they also had um, winter ball in California where a lot of major league players would come over, join local teams. Uh, and even though these were semi-pro teams, some of them were quite good and they included a lot of African-American teams. Um, so the caliber of, of uh, California baseball was, it was quite high in the first two decades of the 20th century. Got it. So they initially started uh, just playing amateur teams, but then they went uh, kind of on a, a, is a tour the right word of the Midwest? It is. So what happens is in 1905 um, is the end of the Russo-Japanese War, when Japan defeats Russia. And it was a real underdog case. Nobody expected uh, little Japan to defeat Russia. And Americans across the country were really intrigued by Japan, partly because of that, but you also have an, a whole movement in art where Japanese styles um, popular, you have an architectural movement uh, with Japanese styles. So America is really intrigued by almost all things Japanese. Um, and in 1905, the Washington University baseball team comes to California and they tour. And this is the first foreign team to ever come over and actually play baseball with the Americans. So there's a lot of interest in Japan and Japan, even some interest in Japanese baseball. So in 1906, a fellow by the name of Guy Green, who is a lawyer in Nebraska, decides to form an all Japanese team and barnstorm around the Midwest. Now, Guy Green already owns the Nebraska Indians, which is a Native American barnstorming team. Um, so he sets up this team, and they, they, the fellows from the Rafu Shimpo team join his team. They're recruited, along with a bunch of other fellows. And they spend the uh, summer of 1906 traveling basically throughout most of the states in the Midwest, playing town teams, other semi-pro teams, whoever will will pay the bills basically. Yeah. And that's the first professional Japanese baseball team of on either side of the Pacific. So there was intrigue, but I'm sure there was also uh, negative reactions or I'm sure there were some challenges as they uh, played in these, you know, cause in, in California, you might see someone who's Japanese on a regular basis if you lived in two of the larger cities, um, but probably not in Nebraska. Not in all in Nebraska. <laughs> um, I forget what state it is off the top of my head. It might have been Iowa. Um, 
where if you go back to the, the census, you see there's like 12 Japanese in the state. Um, there were Japanese who worked on the railroads. So it wasn't like there were, so some people would have seen Japanese, but many in the many of these small towns they traveled through, these are towns of, of 500 people, 600 people. Um, they do have a baseball team, these, these tiny towns of 600 people. So they would come in, they would play the team, they would charge admission. Um, and people came out just to see a full team of Japanese people. I mean, that was just unheard of. Um, there are some evidence of difficulties of, of bigotry, but there's surprisingly few. Um, in a way, it might be because they were so rare, they were so unusual that they faced less bigotry in these small towns than they did in California. I think that's probably the big irony of California's history, right? Which is you have this kind of diverse, quote unquote, open-minded progressive state that, you know, has os oscillated between kind of more conservative administrations and more liberal administrations. We're kind of in one, one part of that pendulum right now. Um, but California's history along these lines um, is really dark. And I think, I think it's kind of overlooked just by the narrative that California has. And so it sounds like they, this baseball team was maybe more received in Nebraska than it was in Los Angeles. I think that's probably true. Yeah, I really do. That's unfortunate. Well, um, so how, how did you, so the, you tied these uh, baseball players stories um, into internment. What, what, what was the connection there? Well, what I do in my book, Issei Baseball, is I, I find players on the team that, that I was able to research. And yeah. There's about a dozen guys on the team, and some of them just disappear from the historical record. They probably went back to Japan. Maybe they changed their names. Um, but about, say, five, five or six of them, I was able to follow their whole lives. So my book is basically a six-person biography. I mean, that oversimplifies the book. But right, right. The, the lives of these six people are intertwined throughout the story from their birth all the way to their death. And of these six guys, um, I'm just doing a quick count. Four of them um, were interred during World War II. Um, they lived in California. Well, three of them lived in California and went through the normal process of internment. Uh, the fourth lived in St. Louis, and he was the most prominent Japanese man in St. Louis, and he was arrested as a spy on trumped-up charges, I think personally because the local um, DA wanted to show how uh, patriotic he was. Yeah. So they trumped up some charges, and they put him in jail as a spy for the entire war. You know, it's it's interesting. I think people don't grasp how long people were interned uh, during the war. I, I think people think about it like a couple months in a camp, but there were many people that were there for three years, if not longer. Um, did, was that a similar situation with some of these players? Um, of, the th of the three players who were interned from California, um, Two got out early. Um, the captain of the team, Harry Saisho, who organized it, was, it was, it was a, 
very interesting man. He was a big thinker, as his own family says. He was a big thinker, but often didn't uh, execute his ideas very well. But he did think of a way out of the camp. And what he did is, um, because so many of the white men were off fighting in World War II, there weren't enough um, people to do farming and, of course, manufacturing. So many uh, Japanese were allowed out of the camps if they moved into a farming community and would work, uh, work as laborers for the farms. So he moved his family into Nebraska, actually. Um, so they were there for, I think, a good year in the war. And another one um, was sponsored by the Friends uh, Service League, and he went to college in Boston and did a petition to get his parents to join him in Boston. So two out of the three managed to leave early. Um, interestingly, both those families, the Saisho family and the Kitsuse family, um, had sons who went and fought um, in the 442nd Regiment during World War II. Wow. Well, so I, I, I think there's, when you approach history by looking at a particular area, I think you can abstract insights from it that you couldn't get from another avenue. So if you look at history through the history of uh, fine arts or something like painting, or if you look at the history of California, for example, through photography, by looking at some of the early photographs and then leading to Ansel Adams and leading to, uh, you know, kind of the more conceptual art that came later, you can learn a lot about California that way. Um, what do you think, uh, what do you think you learned, or what did you learn about California history through looking at baseball that maybe we wouldn't, take from, you know, just reading a traditional narrative of California history? It's an interesting question. Um, being, I'm an East Coaster. So right. one of right. the first things that I learned was the richness of California baseball history. As I mentioned before, it's, quote, minor leagues were a high-quality professional. They had this summer league with um, African-American teams. So that was a big surprise to me. And with this summer league, what was surprised to me was that you had the African-American teams playing against the white teams. And you had occasionally a Japanese team join in and playing. So there was, um, I wanna, this, I'm going to say racial diversity, but I think that's a pretty narrow definition of racial right, diversity. Right. Um, but you did have teams of different races and ethnicities on the diamond playing each other, which was unusual, I think. Um, in some parts of the country, certainly. Um, but barnstorming, I, I, I might want to rephrase that a little bit because the African-American teams at Barnstorm did play white teams throughout the Midwest. So I think maybe baseball was a little bit more, um, less segregated on the field than we've been led to believe. And that, that's something that this, the research kind of opened up for me. Um, and, the, and truthfully, I did not really understand the history of um, Japanese Americans in California before I started the book. And uh, the incredible bigotry that some of them went through in the first decade of the 20th century. It's really something to go back and read these books about their experiences. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, these subjects are tough, but they, I think, at least as someone that's a K-12 teacher in California, um, you know, we don't really cover a lot of these topics in any substantive 
way. I mean, really you have internment, but that's just, you know, a sub point of a sub point. Um, but it, it's such a big part of California's history, kind of this dynamic with different Asian immigrant groups coming in um, and then the backlash from the nativist groups in that in the state, um, that it, it, it should be a more central focus, even if it is makes us a little bit uncomfortable about the history of the state, ultimately. I agree completely. I mean, it is uncomfortable. It's hard to teach, especially to very young, to the young. But at the same time, in order to improve, these are, these are things we have to talk about in our country. These are things we have to really understand in order, you know, it almost sounds like a cliche, in order to move forward. But, you know, the events of the last 10 years show that this is very true, that, you know, we, as a country, we really need to understand our past better. Yeah, and it's, it's particularly poignant right now because uh, there's been some news stories that have come out about uh, certain uh, acts that have happened against uh, Asian groups because of things that have come out about uh, COVID um, and accusations people have made about the origins of COVID. And there was a man that was uh, 90, I think he was 91 years old, and he was killed in San Francisco, shoved to the ground um, in a kind of a... a you know, just a random attack. And they've had, I think, close to 80 of these that have been reported in the last few months. And so, you know, there's a kind of a growing feeling that there's, uh, you know, some some deep-seated bigotry that's kind of coming to the surface. That's not really what I want to talk about. I want to talk about um, really just connecting your understanding to history shows you that this is nothing new, right? And this is something that has been part of the history and I think that historical ignorance contributes to this as well. And um, I just wanted to make that note uh, before we talk about something that's a little bit more fun, which is the differences between Japanese and American baseball. So I was recently reading a book. Uh, I think his name is pronounced Pico Ayur. Um, he is a, is a travel writer, and he wrote some book about stillness a long time ago. Anyway, he has a, he's lived in Japan for 30 years, and he has this great book. Um, I think it's called Observations and Notes, or I'll put the correct uh, in the description of the podcast, but he talks a, a lot about baseball um, in his book. Um, and one of the, my favorite anecdotes that he mentions is um, he was watching the championship game in some, you know, in their main professional league, I guess. Um, and the game was slated to end by 9 p.m., um, but then it went over the time and the Japanese programming just went on to the next thing. They, without a beat, uh, took the game off in the bottom of the ninth or whatever and just went on to some sitcom or something. And then he also told another anecdote about a American coach uh, that went to, or a manager, excuse me, a manager that went to Japan to manage a team and did not last very long because he emphasized winning too much. Um, so there's, <laughs> there's, it seems like there's a lot of differences, uh, in Japanese and American baseball and how it's played. Uh, can you speak to some of the differences between, uh, how our cultures interpret the great game? Sure. This is going more to Japan versus the United States. At this Absolutely. Point. Not Absolutely. the California players. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge topic. There's a wonderful book. I'm passing the buck here. Go out and read it. Uh, Robert Whiting's You've Gotta Have Wah. 
It's written in the 1980s. It's the best book on Japanese baseball. It's, it's a little out of date now because it is written so long ago, but um, it really explains the cultural differences at that time and how they manifest themselves through baseball. What Whiting argues, and uh, I lived in Japan for two years, um, so I really read his book first, and I, and I watched things around me, and I'm like, yeah, he kind of gets most of it. Yeah, yeah. does very well. Um, it's a very different culture. Um, they emphasize, in general, to overgeneralize, <laughs> um, the biggest difference is the group versus the individual. America, you know, we're, we're our, um, what's the word I want? Um, oh, it completely blanked my mind here. Yeah, our, our uh, kind of cultural <laughs> milieu or whatever. Ethos yeah. is, is individuals yeah. of a Japanese right. is, is group, right? Uh, it's basic. I know plenty of individuals in Japan too. But um, baseball is built that way. Uh, in Japanese baseball, generally it's the team first. In America, it's often the individuals or at least the individual players do their best and come together as a team. Um, yeah. In Japan, there's... Um, I think my, my best example of that is when the record for sacrifice bunts was broken in Japan. It was front page sports news. <laughs> I, I don't know more than three or four people who could name the, the leader of sacrifice bunts, you know, in the United States. Um, you really have to know your baseball to know that. And it certainly wouldn't be on the front page of the sports paper. Um, Is that part of the reason why we, uh, well, I'm, I'm just thinking about, you know, professional Japanese players transitioning to, a, you know, American baseball. Um, why isn't there more uh, transition? There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, a lot of the Japanese players are happy in Japan. They are celebrities. They make good money. They speak Japanese and not English. Their family's there. Um, so they're satisfied being there. Um, a number of the very best want to test their abilities against the major league. So you see them coming over. Um, but, you know, because it's a different game, Ichiro is a once in you know, a lifetime player, superstar in both leagues. There are other Japanese position players who would be stars in the United States. Matsui, of course, came over. There's ones who never came over who would be stars. Um, but I think in general, because the, the games, the American game emphasizes different skills than the Japanese game, there's not that many who could just come on over and be accepted by the American teams. That's yeah. the second part of that. It's like if they were American players and they grew up here and they were singles hitters and they were great fielders and great runners, they might make it up through the ranks. But why would you come in and take a free agent and pay them a fair amount of money to leave their team in Japan um, to have them be a singles hitter? And, you know, there's only really so many Ichiros that are successful that way. Yeah. So there's a lot of reasons, but I think those are two. Yeah, it makes me think about what uh, what makes soccer or football so you know 
so interesting is it's 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 a simple game right and it it transitions well whereas baseball is complicated and you know how you interpret that game makes it more complicated and it seems like uh you know that's part of what makes baseball great makes it challenging maybe um but i want to talk a little bit about uh, you and how does someone go from being uh, an archaeologist to a baseball expert um, I like to joke that it's all my wife's fault. <laughs> my wife um, was a Japanese major in college. Uh, she had spent uh, a year in high school there, and could, she can speak fluent Japanese, uh, reads it reasonably well. And so she became a, an attorney, and um, she was asked if she wanted to go to Tokyo for a couple of years as basically an in, not quite an intern, but as an exchange lawyer. And she said, absolutely, I want to. And, and I said, that sounds like so much fun. Um, I, of course, never, never been to Japan at that time or, or know much about Japan. But so we just packed up the books. We were young. We had no kids at the time. Um, and we moved to Tokyo. And my very first night, um, she was there a month before I was getting settled. And I showed up and I'm all jet lagged from a, what a 15 hour flight or whatever it was back then and exhausted getting the hotel and she's like oh good you're here we're going to a baseball game because her co-workers had given us really really good seats to one of the tokyo teams uh cult swallows and i show up and i had never seen a baseball game like this it was the cult swallows with the hunching tigers and it was like being a big 10 basketball game. There are horns blaring, there's cheers, not cheerleading, but whole outfield would cheer and sing in unison and blow horns and wave flags. And the stadium is shaking with every batter. This isn't just like in a key situation. Every batter had their own songs. Um, it was so much fun. I said, oh, wow, this is the best. And that sounds great. I'm, I've it, gone to so many Dodgers games where it's just like, half the people around me don't even know what the score is, <laughs> you know, they're, they're going back and forth to get more beer and more hot dogs. And they're like, I just came to hang out. Yeah. It was so different. Um, and so my, um, the next day, um, my wife went off to work and I'm, I'm in the hotel with not much to do. And luckily a, a friend, a mutual friend came by and said, you know, you, what do you want to do? I'm going to show you around Tokyo today. And I said, I want to go find Japanese baseball cards. <laughs> so my first full day in Tokyo, that's what we did. We, we went looking for Japanese baseball cards, which I found. And so from day one, it, uh, I've kind of enjoyed Japan through the lens of baseball. Well, it seems like there's some related skills going on here between archaeology and, uh, you know, looking into something and uh, look, trying to understand a culture in some ways through through a game, through, you know, different kinds of artifacts. And so I love that the connection. And I think that's, you know, a lot of our stories is that we kind of stumble into things. And, um, you know, the it, when you stumble into things, you accidentally bring skills from one domain to the other that you maybe wouldn't have seen the connection to. Um, and so I, I think that's really neat. And I think that's, a, a, a you know, something to tell younger people when they're thinking about careers. Sometimes you're just going to stumble into it, right? You're just going to, you're going to be traveling with your spouse, or you're going to be assigned a strange job, at, you know, as a, as a, you know, intern, and you're going to fall in love with it. And that's usually how stuff happens. Um, so I do want to finish by talking about books. Um, do you have uh, some 
book recommendations, whether uh, about uh, Japan, baseball, or California history, any of those subjects? Um, I, would, I would recommend as a starter, um, uh, um, Bob Whiting's You Gotta Have Wa for Japanese baseball is the classic in the field. Um, for, I'm no expert on California history, but there's a couple good books on um, Japanese American baseball. One is a biography of a fellow named um, uh, Kenichi uh, Zenimura. It's, he is considered the father of Japanese American baseball, even though he postdates the guys I'm writing about. He's the one who really brought Nisei baseball and made it popular. And that's by a, a guy named Bill Staples Jr. It's a wonderful book. There's another book called, I believe it's Japanese American Baseball in California uh, by Kerry Yo Nakagawa. And that's worth anybody interested in this topic should definitely be reading that book as well. So those two are a great introduction to um, Japanese American baseball in California. Well, to, to close, um, sometimes I ask people uh, this question uh, on this podcast and others, uh, overrated or underrated, um, and to, to, you know, take a stand on something. Uh, do you think Ken Burns' documentary on baseball is overrated or underrated? Oh, that's so hard for me to tell because this is my field. Yeah. So when I first watched it, when I was, you know, I was, I was fairly young. I wasn't a kid, but uh, young enough. And I was studying archaeology and never thought that I would, you know, be writing about baseball. Yeah, I loved it. I, I bought my copy. I have my, my old DVD. I think I might even bought it on cassette tape at one point. <laughs> um, and I really enjoyed it. Now, as I become a professional and I spend all my day, you know, <laughs> five or seven days a week uh, reading about baseball and writing about baseball, yeah, it's a little simplistic in, in times. But if you haven't seen it, yeah, go out and, and watch it, um, enjoy it. He introduces so many interesting stories. Um, he was really important in introducing African-American baseball in the Negro Leagues to a wider audience. Um, most non, you know, casual baseball fans back in the uh, 1990s hadn't really heard of them. And so uh, that documentary was, was really important, I think. Yeah, and I think that's what he does particularly well is connecting things like, uh, I recently watched his country music documentary um, and connecting the way that, you know, African-Americans in the South contributed, you know, banjos and different things uh, to country music that, you know, and, and not people not connecting, you know, African-American history to uh, country music, which is, you know, largely seen as kind of white culture. Um, I think that connect, connecting those things is a great thing he does. I, um, do you have any other baseball documentaries that you'd recommend just out of curiosity? There's one that I just saw. Oh boy. Now it's going to, I may have to send send it to to your readers. It it just came out. It's not available yet. It, it's on the Japanese uh, high school tournament Koshian, and it is wonderful. It's one of the best baseball documentaries I've ever seen. The, the um, just the the photography is beautiful. It follows the play some players. And it gets into their lives. It's a wonderful film. Um, 
and the, I'm sorry. I will find the title. It sounds I'm like the hoop dreams, dreams for baseball is what it sounds like, which is probably it's a yeah. wonderful film. Really well, and, I appreciate you coming uh, to talk to me, Rob. I really do. It's uh, it's been a lot of fun, and you know, I've I've always been a baseball fan, but I didn't know much about Japanese baseball, and so it's been fun to discover your work and get introduced to it as a topic. And I hope people will read your book. Where they where can they find uh, your books and uh, your website? Well, my website is real interest uh, easy to find. It's Rob Fitz R O B F I T T S dot com. Uh, I have all my books for sale there, signed copies. Um, and of course, you can always go to Amazon. I've got a Amazon page there with all my books. Um, or local uh, independent bookstores will probably have it. What's your next project? I've actually um, about to release a new book in a week or two. Um, Perfect. Sure, you, you can see it, but we're not on camera. Yeah. Uh -huh. What I did is my Issei Baseball book is a textual book. You know, it's 200 and some pages, and it, it's history. Um, but during my research, I found a lot of great vintage photographs. So I self-published uh, this book, so you can see it, where it's just a history of Japanese-American baseball before World War I, but it's a pictorial history. And this is the idea that, you know, you're interested in the topic, but you don't want to commit to 200 and some pages, or you've got a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old, you know, in the family who was interested. This book will, 70 pages, lots and lots of pictures, <laughs> will introduce the topic. Well, and I think books like that are so great. I just, um, I just in thinking and reading about, you know, it being Black History Month and being an educator, I found this great graphic novel on the history of the Black Panthers. And I just finished that. And it was totally fascinating. I didn't, and I knew some of the history, but not quite in detail. But, you know, when you can present stuff in new ways, you get new readers and new people interested. And I think uh, figuring out how people, I mean, obviously, this is a podcast about history. So we're, try, we're all trying to find ways to reach people um, and connect them to history. So I, uh, that's great. And, um, I, I recommend people, uh, get not only the uh, book about the LA club, but also, uh, Rob's other books. They're all great. I've checked them out over the last few months and learn a lot and I couldn't recommend them more highly. Thanks for listening, folks. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be dropping two days from now on Friday, continuing our conversation about the interim military government in California. See you next time.